Welcome to the Hand Tools and Techniques Woodworking Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Rosieski, answering your questions and bringing you tips and tricks to help you get the most out of your time in the shop. Do you have trouble making the edge of a board square with a hand plane? Are you considering building a standalone workshop? Would you like to try your hand at applying veneer but you don't want to invest in a lot of specialty tooling? I'll discuss these topics and more today on Hand Tools and Techniques. Hey everyone, welcome back to Hand Tools and Techniques. Thanks for joining me for episode 25 of the show for May 3rd, 2018. Before I start today's show, I just want to take a minute to thank our new patrons, Jeremy Turner and Zaid Zaytoun. Thank you both for signing up uh, over on Patreon to support the show. And thanks to all of our patrons for your continued support of the show. If you'd like to support the show yourself, head on over to patreon.com slash brfinewoodworking. And if you pledge $3 a month or more, you'll get access to a once a month patron only video episode of the podcast as my special way of saying thanks. So as I mentioned last time on the show, there's not too much that has been going on here other than working on the cabin. I did start work on a new workbench, but I really haven't progressed too much on that. But I do have some uh, exciting news, at least exciting for me. Um, I'm going to be moving my shop from the the shed, the drafty, hot, cold, wasp-infested shed that I'm currently in, I'm going to be moving it up to the basement of the new cabin. We've got our um, rough inspection passed, so we're able to insulate and close up all the interior walls now. And uh, as a result, I'm going to be moving my shop up there because I'm going to need my workbench and my tools to do a lot of the finish work up there anyway. So I'm actually going to be moving my shop up into the basement uh, at the new cabin and It's just going to be a a temporary situation because at some point I'm going to build a a new shop uh, and I won't be in the basement. But for now, at least, I will be in the uh, in the basement, which is, you know, probably five, five feet or so below grade. Um, So it stays cool in the summer. Uh, It's not too cold in the winter and this coming winter. It shouldn't be a problem anyway, because we plan to be in the cabin by then. So uh, some of the heat from the house should be coming down into the basement. Um, And in addition to that, it won't be infested with wasps and carpenter bees, and I won't have to uh, eradicate them every time I I come into the shop so that I don't get swarmed. So uh, that's going to be pretty cool, but it's going to keep me out of the shop probably for at least a few weeks. But um, the next time um, I post any videos or blog posts or photos from the shop, they will most likely be from the uh, from the basement of the new cabin, so that's kind of cool. So let's get right into our listener questions. Uh, the first one's a, it's kind of a, a long question because I kind of combined a couple separate emails from uh, from from Brian, but um, bear with me and we'll we'll get through it. So the first question is from Brian Steinberger. He says, your recent topic of bench planes is actually something I've been thinking a lot about lately, particularly triplanes and joiner planes. I slightly camber my joiner plane, a Stanley number 7, and it works great on the faces of boards and also on edges to adjust out of square edges. 
Uh, many times I leave the surface from the joiner as my finished surface. I'm interested, however, in your idea of a straight iron for edge and match planing boards for glue-ups, as you mentioned in the podcast. I've thought about getting a Stanley number 6 and setting it up as a triplane and going to a straight iron in my number 7. However, I'm more of a minimalist woodworker and was curious how well would a two-iron approach work in your opinion. I could get another iron and breaker set from my 7 and sharpen it straight to use for match planing. Would I quickly get tired of switching the irons? Also, to add on to the feedback about the four plane and camber versus straight iron, could you take a little bit? Could you talk a little bit about your wooden four plane? I was working some rough circular saw and wide pine this past weekend and started with my Stanley five with a cambered iron as I normally do. It works pretty well, and while it's not super heavy, I'm curious about a wooden four plane for initial removal of the fuzzy circular sawn surface and to remove the first obvious high spots. Just curious of your thoughts on things like the lightness of the plane. What's a good length and also single iron versus double iron for the task and how bad is tear out? I can remove the fuzziness with my cambered iron on my number five with a chip breaker set somewhat close, about a sixteenth of an inch from the edge, but it does take a while. However, tear out is not a big issue. Curious if it would be with a wooden plane. I know this starts to get into four plane versus scrub plane territory, but I don't want to go there. I'm not interested in a scrub plane. All right, so I'm actually going to answer... The second question first, um, the the four plane that I use, I actually have two. I mean, I have my my Stanley number five um, that I use with a cambered iron, similar to what you're using. Um, I don't know if the camber is you know the same as, as what you're using, but um, I can hog off wood pretty quickly with that plane. So and you mentioned that it, it takes some time um, with your Stanley number five. I'm guessing maybe you're not set it for a deep enough cut, or maybe you don't have a lot of camber, um, or you know, or, or maybe you're just not taking a, a deep cut. I don't know, but um, I can hog off wood pretty quickly with my my number five uh, with the cambered iron. So um, I'm thinking it's probably just the way that your plane is set up, um, and this is, the number five is a pretty good weight for a four plane. My wooden four plane is longer than the Stanley number five. So the Stanley number five is about 14 inches long. My wooden four plane, I guess, is about 17 or 18 inches long. So it is clo- closer in size to a Stanley number six. The benefit of, this, of the wooden four plane, though, is that it weighs significantly less than the Stanley number six. And I haven't weighed the two side by side, and I haven't owned a number six probably in 15 years. But um, it is significantly lighter than a number six. So I would say that is a, a, the benefit is that you get the length of the number six, um, which is very helpful for starting to take board faces and bring them closer to flat um, because it's longer than the number five, but it's closer in weight to the number five. So it doesn't tire you out like the number five does. And the blade's also a little bit wider than the number five. I think that my blade and my four planes about two and a quarter inches or so, um, whereas the blade in a Stanley number five is two inches. So that extra width helps a little bit too. Um, just clear the wood a little bit faster and make things flatter a little bit faster than using a shorter plane with a narrower iron. Um, I would say that that is, those are the main benefits is the, the, the length, the extra length over a Stanley number five and the lighter weight compared to the Stanley number six size plane. 
Um, and so you're kind of getting the best of both worlds. You get the extra length, but you don't have to deal with the extra weight of the heavy iron plane. You also get a real nice, thick, heavy iron. And this is a good thing for hogging off a lot of material because you get, uh, you don't have to worry so much about blade flex and chatter. Um, you, you mentioned tear out. Tear out's not an issue because I do a lot of my four plane work across and diagonal to the grain. So, you know, I'm not too concerned with tear out. The, the main place that I'm concerned was, is spelching or, you know, ripping of grain at the corners, at the edges, because I don't want to pull big chips out. So sometimes I will, um, I'll bevel off the corner down to a gauge line if I'm playing into final thickness, or if I'm just doing my initial flattening, I'll kind of work in from both edges so that I'm not running the plane off the edge um, and taking the risk of, of pulling a big chip off of the edge. But between the cambered iron, working primarily across and diagonal to the grain, um, I'm not really getting too much tear out. And any tear out that I do get is going to be taken care of by the triplane in the final flattening step when I'm planing up that face with the triplane. So I don't worry too much about tear out with the number five because it's taken care of in the next step. So now going on to your, um, your first question in terms of using a number seven for both uh, a triplane and a joiner, you know, and swapping out irons. So um, I do like using a cambered iron and a triplane, um, again, because you can use that plane very easily to square the edges of boards. Um, much easier, much more easily than a straight iron. Um, but again, as you mentioned, you know, when you're plane in faces, with a, a straight iron, it would leave tracks. So the, the, the cambered iron helps with that. And, and it also helps with squaring the edges. The straight iron in the joiner plane is really something that, it's more of a preference to me. And like I said, it, it really comes from reading some older books where they were using two separate planes. And they did mention that the joiner plane would have had a straight iron. And after trying it, I really liked it. I felt that my edge joints just got much tighter and much cleaner. Um, and more invisible after cleaning up the panel when I was using a straight iron. Um, and that may just be me and my technique, you know, because I know plenty of people who use a cambered iron to do their edge joining and they do just fine with it. Um, in terms of swapping out, you know, just getting an extra iron and swapping them out, how old of an approach that would get and how quickly you get tired of switching the irons. I think that really comes down to you and your personality. Um, I don't care for switching irons out all the time because then I have to readjust things. And so for me personally, it would get old and I, I prefer having the, the two separate planes, but that's just me. The great thing about the jointer is that it doesn't, you're not using it for a lot. You're really going to use it for, you know, final passes and things like that. So for example, you might use your triplane to square and straighten the edge of a board and then you might pull out the flat iron, the straight iron jointer just to make one or two passes right before you're going to do the glue up just to kind of, f f f yeah, okay, just to do the final flattening of that edge before you glue it up just to make sure you get real good glue contact surfaces. Or you might use it for match planing where, you know, you've already straightened the edges. You're not too, so concerned about squaring them, but you've already got them pretty straight then you're going to take those two boards, put them together, and plane the two edges again, maybe just a couple of passes with that joiner plane just to get them ready for edge gluing. So you're not 
using that plane a whole lot um, for the edge joining. So I can understand not wanting to buy a separate plane. However, if you're going to get a separate blade and, and chip breaker, let's say you're going to you know go out and you're going to buy a hawk blade and chip breaker or something um, as an extra for that number seven, that might cost you you know fifty seventy five dollars. Well, with that same money, you could go get yourself another number you know old number seven, or you could get yourself a, a wooden jointer or a transitional. You can get a transitional jointer probably for twenty bucks, um, and just dedicate that plane to jointing work with a straight iron. And I think in the long run, I think you'll be happier with that because you'll be able to switch back and forth between the planes a lot easier instead of having to constantly swap out irons. And I don't think swapping irons is going to be a constant thing. If you plan your work right, you'll be able to do all your triplane work first. And then just before you're going to glue a panel together, you swap the irons out, you hit the edge real quick, and then you glue it up. Um, but like I said, it's, it's getting that everything set up after you swap the iron that takes the time. It's not swapping the iron. It's getting the plane reset up again for depth of cut and making sure everything's, um, cutting straight and, and the iron is adjusted laterally properly. So that's the reason why I just like to have two separate planes. And I use, um, I have a, um, a Lee Nielsen number eight that I use, and I have a wooden triplane that I use. And one of them has a straight iron, and one of them has a cambered iron. Um, and I can just swap back and forth. And that wooden triplane, you know, I think was maybe 30 bucks. So it was less than the cost of a plane, you know, a, a new iron for the other, a new iron and chip breaker set for the other plane. So to me, it was just worth it just to get another another plane. It was just easier I can keep it set up and then I don't have to worry about it. But uh, again, you know, swapping irons would work just fine. Whether or not it's you're going to get tired of doing it, that just depends on you and your personality. For me, I think I would, um, but, you know, not everybody's the same. So our next question comes from Liam O'Neill. And Liam also has a question about four planes. He says, I'm still confused about the purpose of a four plane. On one hand, it's like a jack plane. It is sharpened with a camber and used before the smoothing plane and before the joiner. On the other hand, it's also like a triplane for the same reasons, uh, assuming you true an edge before you join it. Would the Stanley number no. six make a decent jack and triplane? So you're right, Liam. Um, and, and just to clarify, um, I would say that a four plane is not like a jack plane. A four plane is a, is a jack plane. Um, so like I said in the, in the podcast where I talked about um, the different names of the planes. If you go back into the older books, what you'll find is that the jack plane and the four plane, they specifically said the jack plane and the four plane are the same plane. The joiners just happen to call it a four plane while the carpenters happen to call it a jack plane. But other than that, they're the same plane. So, um, it, it's, I know these days it can get confusing because of Stanley. And, and I, I like to blame Stanley and I know it's not completely Stanley's fault, but they made the, you know, they have the biggest name they made the most and they, and they actually named their planes, you know, um, in addition to the numbers and they called the number five, a Jack plane, and they called the number six, a four plane. But the fact of the matter is those names were based and, and designed by people in a marketing department, not by, um, 
not by people who actually used the tools or went back into history and did the research and looked at the old books and said, oh, a jack plane and a four plane are the same thing. They were more interested in marketing and selling planes. So um, I know it's difficult to do, but we really need to ignore what Stanley had to say about planes when we start to talk about the four plane. Because if we go back before Stanley, the jack plane and the four plane were the same plane. Um, now, with that said, the the four plane, any plane can be a four plane. You can use a number five as a four plane. You can use a number four as a four plane. You can use a number six as a four plane. You can use a wooden four plane or a wooden jack plane or a transitional in, you know, that's roughly the same size. It doesn't matter what the number is associated with the plane. It doesn't really matter what the length is to a certain extent associated with the plane. What makes a four plane a four plane is how you set up the iron and how you use it. So if you take a plane that's roughly the size of a jack plane, anywhere from you know 14 inches up to about 18 inches or so, um, doesn't matter the width of the iron. Um, if you take that plane and you set it up with a good heavy camber for a thick cut and you and you use that plane to for heavy work to remove you know roughs on surfaces before your triplane it's a four plane regardless of what stanley may have called it so i would say yes you can you can certainly use a number six as a four plane or jack plane you can also use it as a triplane the difference between the four plane and the triplane is not the length Yes, a triplane is typically slightly longer because a longer sole helps you to flatten better. But the main difference between the four plane and the triplane is how the iron is set up, not the length and width of the tool itself. So yes, so I mean, your main question was, would the Stanley number six make a decent jack and triplane? Yes, um, if you set this number six up with a heavy camber to the iron, it's the same thing as a jack or a four plane. If you set the number six up with a mild camber, just a little bit of camber to the iron set for a much thinner shaving, then it can make a decent triplane. But there is a there is a difference between a four plane or jack plane and a triplane. There is not a difference between a jack plane and a four plane. They are the same plane. But the the, the jack plane or the four plane and the triplane are are different tools, but that difference comes from the setup. So if you wanted to use a number six for a jack plane and a triplane, what I would say is to get two irons for it, like uh, with the previous question that I was saying for Brian, you can have a heavy cambered iron that you can use for your initial work with the number six, and you can have a, an iron with much less camber that you set for a thin cut and use for your triplane work. Where I think you're going to what I think you may find, though, is that that number six is going to be kind of heavy for really um, aggressive work with a, a heavily cambered iron. And that's why I think the wooden four plane is so much better, the wooden jack plane, so much better than the number six for that kind of work because you can put a heavy camera on the iron. The plane is still fairly lightweight. Um, but it still has the length of that number six. But there's no reason you can't use a number six to do both tasks. I would say you would want to have two irons for the plane, though, and set those two irons up differently. One for use as a four plane with a heavy camber and a heavy and a thick cut, 
and one for use as a triplane with a light camber and a light cut. So our next question is a voicemail from Mark Benson. Let's see hear what Mark has to say. Hi, Bob. This is Mark from Australia. I've been listening to your show. I've only just discovered it and finding it very informative and great to listen to. So thanks very much for, for that. Now, I have a question for you. When I'm trying to joint boards with a hand plane, and bear in mind I'm new to you know woodworking with hand tools, I find that I usually finish up with the edge not square. Uh, when I put a, a square on there, I can see that it's low on one one side by a millimetre or a sixteenth of an inch. So then I have to plane off the other side and then I usually overcompensate and so that side goes low and this goes on for maybe 10 passes until I finally get it square, by which time I've probably remo removed far more stock than I intended to. So I just wanted to know if, if you can recommend any exercises or tips on how to hold the plane so that I do ensure that it's horizontal on the timber and clearly it's not at the moment so i'm keen to know any ideas you can give me on that pretty basic thing i guess uh and maybe it just comes down to experience but uh i'm keen to know if you've got any helpful hints so keep up the great work with the podcasts they're really fantastic and very informative and i'm learning a lot and uh i hope you'll be able to help me with this little problem i'm having okay have a great day thanks bye so mark thanks so much for the voicemail um, Mark did make two two uh, notes by email that he he said he forgot to include in the voicemail. One, his he's using a straight iron in his plane. His plane iron is not cambered, um, but it is sharp and it's adjusted to ensure an even shaving on both sides. And uh, and the boards that he's planing are being held vertically in a in a solid bench vise. So um, so essentially, it's coming down to one of two things or or both or two things um, that can be the problem and can also be the solution. The first is the plane itself. So having a straight iron, you can certainly joint edges and, and square edges with a plane with a straight iron. Um, but it does require quite a bit of practice and technique. Um, and you, it's something you really need to work at because when you're using a straight iron, the plane is taking a shaving of consistent thickness off the entire edge of the board. So what that means is you have to be able to hold that plane perfectly square to the edge of the board. Think about the way a power jointer works. A power jointer has straight knives and it has a 90 degree fence. If you were to just take the edge of your board as it stands from the mill place it flat on the table of that jointer and run it over the knives, it would create a flat surface. But that flat surface wouldn't necessarily be square to the edge of the board. In order to ensure that the edge is square to the face of the board on a power jointer, you need to make sure that you hold the face of the board tight to a fence that has been set precisely at 90 degrees to the table. Only then, is that power jointer going to remove just the high spot on the edge until that edge comes into square? Well, the process is no different with a 
hand plane with a straight iron. If you're going to use a, a straight iron to square up the edge of a board, first you need to know where the material needs to come off. So obviously you're going to take a tri-square and you're going to check to see which edge is high. After that, you need to make sure that you're only removing material from the high edge until that board comes into square. So you shouldn't be taking a full width shaving until that board comes into square. That's difficult to do with a hand plane because you need to be able to hold that hand plane square to the face of the board consistently down the entire length of the board um, for multiple passes. And that's not an easy thing to do. Now they do make jointer fences that you can clamp to your jointer plane. Uh, Lee Valley has a magnetic one. Um, there were antique ones as well that kind of clamped on to the side of a, uh, a hand plane that made them act like joiner planes. And they even make planes specifically designed. I think it's the it's called an edge plane. Lee Valley makes one, Lee Nielsen makes one, and Stanley was the one that I think created it. I don't remember what the name of it is, but it's essentially, it might be number 95, but it's essentially a block plane um, with a square um, a square fence cast into the body of the plane um, that you can use to square the edge. So they did make make um, tools for doing this. Um, you can use the, the fence, the clamp-on fence or the magnetic fence or the, the edge plane, and they will get your edges perfectly square in just a, a few shavings um, if you're using a square iron. So that's one way that you can do it um, because... If you're good, if you want to use a square iron for edge, uh, for squaring the edge, I would recommend one of those solutions because it's just it's just going to be very difficult to hold that plane consistently square and flat to the edge of the board for the entire length of the board to be able to do that. You can shift the plane like you would with a cambered iron and just kind of nip the high spots. I've done that before with planes with straight irons, and what you'll end up with is sort of a stair-stepped edge until you get that edge fairly square and then you have to go back to planing um, full width until you remove those ridges on the edge and, and it's sort of a trial and error thing but again I think what it sounds like to me is you think you're removing too much material A and it's taking too long so if you want to continue to use the square edge on your blade the square uh, square uh, yeah a blade that is sharp and straight across then I would suggest either getting a, a fence for your joiner plane or using one of those edge trimming block planes that makes the edge square um, and that'll help get it square and then you can use your triplane to make it straight. But the cambered iron is really a valuable tool when it comes to squaring the edge of a board. And at first it's somewhat counterintuitive. Why would I want to use a curved iron to make the edge of the board square? But the camber is fairly slight. It's not a big camber at all. I think I did a, um, a blog post on my old blog years ago where I actually tried to measure the amount of camber that I had in my plane irons um, in terms of a radius. And, and I don't want to get into using radius versus other methods because personally I think there's a better way than using a radius. But it's it's an easy way to kind of translate what the what the camber actually is on a certain plane. 
Anyway, I think that my triplane had a radius of about 25 inches or something like that. It was a big radius. It was almost flat. You know, you almost couldn't tell that the plane had a camber until you put a square up or a straight edge up on the edge of the blade. But what this allows you to do is use the the thickness of the shaving or the or I should say the tapered nature of the shaving to help you because now you don't have to worry about keeping the plane flat on the ed, uh, square to the edge of the board to the face of the board all you have to do is keep the sole of the plane flat on the edge of the board and shift the plane left or right to take a, a thicker shaving on part of the board and a thinner shaving on a, on the other part of the board. So wherever the uh, out of square edge is highest, you want to take the most amount of material. So you shift the plane so that the part of the iron that's taking the thickest shaving, which is typically the center of the blade, that part of the of the plane should be directly over the top of the part of the edge that needs to have the most re- material removed. So if the right hand edge of, if the right hand corner of the board's edge needs the most material removed, you put the center of the plane over the right hand corner of the edge. And you're now taking a tapered shaving that's thicker on that corner and tapers to a thinner shaving on the opposite corner. And after making two or three passes that way, what you'll find is that you're gradually taking down the high corner faster than you are taking down the low corner. And you may only need two, three, four passes that way in order to get your edge square. Once you have a square edge, then you take the center of the plane and you center it um, over the edge of the board to take the rest of your shavings if you still need to straighten the edge. And that helps you to not plane out of square. Alternatively, and this goes back to Brian's uh, earlier question about the difference between a triplane and a joiner plane. A lot of related questions today. Um, Once you have that edge square with your triplane, by using that cambered iron approach, you can either go to a plane with a straight iron or swap blades and go to that straight iron and then plane the edge of that board to get it straight. And by using the straight iron, then you don't have to worry about planing the board out of square again because you're going to be taking an equal length, uh, equal thickness shaving across the entire edge of the board. So uh, that's another way you can do it. So um, to summarize, the solution to your problem is to A, um, either change your technique by using um, some type of joiner fence so that you can hold that straight iron square to the face of the board, or B, change your iron to a cambered iron And you're still going to change your technique somewhat, but the iron is going to do a lot of that work just by by putting the thicker part of the shaving over the higher part of the edge. And one of those two things should help you out with your, your problem. So our last question comes from Nathan Fine. Nathan says, I'm getting started in woodworking and I'm going to be setting up a wood shop in my basement. It's not a large area as it's part of my laundry room, so I don't have a lot of space. I know I can make it work, but my wife and I are thinking about a more permanent solution where we were thinking about an outdoor shed in the backyard. Can you provide some insight into this idea? I live in Cleveland. It can get pretty cold and wet during the winter. I'm a bit worried about moisture in the shop, both in terms of tools and the wood itself. Anything else that I should think about? So great question, Nathan. Uh, Something that I'm 
planning for myself within the uh, within the next couple of years. Hopefully, once the new cabin is built, my plan is to start building a new shop. Um, so there there are some things to think about. Um, I've worked in basements. I've worked in climate controlled rooms of the house, um, spare rooms in the house um, that were air conditioned and heated and insulated. I've worked in garages, and I'm currently working in an outdoor shed that is uh, neither air-conditioned nor heated nor insulated. So I do have some things, some some suggestions that I can offer. Um, The shed that I work in now is probably something similar to what you're thinking about, Um, but I would offer a few suggestions. The first thing, so I live where I live in in uh, Virginia is up in the in the Blue Ridge Mountains, it, and I think the weather is probably I don't want to say similar to Cleveland. I'm sure Cleveland gets quite a bit colder than it does here in the in the winter. Though we can have um, you know quite a few we can have some single digit uh, days and weeks here in the mountains. So. But we do have a lot of humidity swings and temperature swings. Um, so there are a few things that I have had to do that I didn't have to do in my old climate-controlled space um, for my tools. I don't worry so much about the wood, but the tools I, I did have to worry about. Um, the first thing is to make sure that you your tools are protected in something and not stored open on the wall. I love having access to my tools right on the wall over the bench. If you go back to my old blog and look at some of the old pictures there, or if you look at some of my old videos on YouTube that were done in my old shop um, where I had the tools up on the wall, I would prefer to have every shop that I that I ever work in from here on out have that same setup. But that was a, really an ideal situation. Again, my house was climate controlled. The humidity didn't vary that much inside the house. The temperature, more importantly, didn't vary um, from day to night inside the house. So the biggest problem that you'll find with your tools is the temperature swings. It's actually not the humidity swings. People think the humidity is the big problem. Humidity can be a problem. And if you live in Arizona, obviously it doesn't matter a whole lot because the humidity is so low. But in the rest of the country, whether you have moderate humidity or whether you have really intense humidity... The humidity in and of itself is the relative humidity is really not the issue. The issue is more the temperature swings because what happens is during the day, especially in a, in a shed that's not insulated and not climate controlled, the temperature gets quite warm. Um, my shed will get over a hundred degrees easily in the summer. Um, and I, I don't even want to be in here when it's that temperature. And that high temperature carries a lot of humidity with it. The warmer the air is, the more moisture that air can carry. So warm air is going to bring in a, bring a lot of moisture into the space. Then the temperature drops overnight. The sun goes down, the temperature goes down, and especially up here in the mountains, we could have a difference, a 40 degree difference in temperature between day and night. You know, we may have 85 during the day, and it may go down into the 50s, 30-degree drop um, overnight. And the problem is the surface of those tools, especially iron tools, cools 
and, and, and stays somewhat cold. And then the following day, the temperature gets warm again. It brings all that humidity in, but the surface of those metal tools is still cold from the night before. It takes a lot longer for the surface of those tools to warm up than it does for the air in the building to warm up. So when the air in the building warms up and bring again brings in that higher level of moisture, that moisture wants to condense when it hits that warm air, hits the cold surface of those iron tools. And anybody who's ever worked with power tools in, a, in an un, unheated garage or anything is going to tell you the same thing. You need to somehow protect your iron surfaces because when the hot air, the warm air of the daytime hits the iron surfaces of the tools that cooled down overnight, you're going to get condensation on the surface of those metal tools. And that's where the rust problem comes from. So what I found in my shop, and again, it's unheated, it's uninsulated, it's very drafty because it's not tight at all. I mean, the walls are practically falling down in this thing. Um, and I've got a roll-up door that I can probably crawl over the top of and, and get outside without opening the door. The space is so big. Um, there, even though I have those temperature swings, what I've done is is put my tools in tool chests, wooden tool chests that are, they're not obviously not airtight, but they keep that air, air transfer rate down significantly. And I haven't had a problem with rust since then because the air in the chest, the moisture in the chest is actually absorbed more or less by the wood, the unfinished wood on the inside of the chest. So that helps control some of the moisture, but the wood is also an insulator. So there are plenty of days where I'll come into the shop, I open the tool chest, and I reach in and I can feel cold air inside the tool chest, even though it's 80 degrees in my shop. So the the tool chest is insulating the tools and it's keeping that temperature from changing so drastically so quickly. And that's keeping the condensation off the tools and it's keeping them from rusting. So I highly, highly, highly recommend, if you're going to be in a shed that is not going to be climate controlled around the clock. You keep your tools in some type of somewhat uh, airtight, not airtight, because obviously, like I said, the tool chests aren't airtight, but keep them in a chest or a cabinet or something that is going to keep that temperature from changing so rapidly. Um, and that's going to help significantly. So um, the second recommendation would be if you are going to be building this thing from scratch, if your your budget will allow for it, insulate it and climate control it. And those two things are going to help you immensely. Um, I plan when I build my shed, my, my new shop, um, I don't know how big it's going to be yet. I don't know what the design of it is going to be yet. What I do know is I am going to insulate it and I'm going to insulate it well and I plan to have some type of system in there that I can climate control it and at least keep the temperature. We don't have, we don't get too hot here in the summer. Um, so I'm not going to, I won't worry so much about air conditioning it, but I will want to in the winter, keep the temperature 50 degrees or above just to make sure that any water or anything in the, in the, um, any finishes and things like that or glues in the shop don't freeze. First of all, because that becomes a real huge inconvenience when your glues freeze. 
um, or if you use water stones, if your water stone pond freezes or your water bottles or anything like that freeze, your stones can crack, uh, it becomes a huge hassle. So I, that's priority number one for climate control is to keep things in the shop from freezing. But then priority number two is if I can maintain that temperature in the shop so that it doesn't go any lower than 50 degrees, say, that is also going to help with surfaces, metal surfaces of any type of power tools or machines that you have, and also with your hand tools, um, keeping them from getting that condensation on them and, um, and, and having problems with things developing rust. So insulate well if you can. Have some type of 24-hour climate control in there that can at least keep the temperature, you know, 50 degrees or or above. Um, again, I'm not considering air conditioning in my shop. We don't even, we're not even putting air conditioning in our house because where we are, the summertime temperatures don't typically get above the mid 80s, um, and we can open our windows and get nice breezes through. And and we we really survive the summers just fine without air conditioning. So. Um, I'm not too worried about that, but the cold winters are a problem. And uh, so keeping the temperature up will certainly help. Um, other things you're going to want to consider is lighting. Make sure you've got adequate light. I like lots of natural light, so my new shop is going to have lots of windows. Uh, again, if you can afford to put in lots of windows for lots of natural light, I would highly recommend doing that. Um, and then make it easy to get to. Um you know, if you've got a lot of property, I don't, I don't know, in Cleveland, you know, you, you're, I would imagine you're probably more suburban um, or, or more of an urban type of setting. So you're probably not sitting on a lot of property. Um, I'm on 25 acres. Um, so, you know, where I put my shop is going to be, you know, what type of proximity to the house is going to be somewhat important for getting power out to it, um, as well as getting to and from the shop after dark, you know, are you going to have a path that leads to the shop? Are you going to be able to light that path? Or are you going to have to walk out with a lantern or a, or a flashlight or something to get out to your shop? Because, you know, it's, it's 50 yards away, um, you know, on the other side of the, of the pasture or whatever. Um, you know, and, and that may even discourage you from going to the shop at times. If it's real dark, you don't feel like going out there. You don't want to walk out there, you know, so where your shop's going to be located, certainly you want to think about as well. Um, and those are all things that I'm thinking about for my own shop, where I'm going to put it, how I'm going to get power to it, how I'm going to get water to it if I plan to have water in the shop. Um, you know, these are things that you typically don't have to think about in a garage or a basement because all of those utilities are, are fairly, fairly easy. Um, but in a detached building, it's all additional things you want to think about. Um, so that, uh, I hope that gives you some things to think about when you're designing your new shop. And good luck with it. Uh, I, if you uh, do decide to build something, send some pictures. I'd love to see it when you're done. So that's it for this week's questions. As always, if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for the show, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. Or you can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123. And you can go to brfinewoodworking.com slash contact and fill out the contact form. So today's main topic is all about hammer veneering basics. It was a topic that was suggested by Damian King, so let's listen to his question on the subject. Hey, Bob. Damian from Hudson Valley, New York here. I thought maybe you uh, could talk a little bit about hammer veneering. Um, 
maybe get a little into hot height glues, shop made veneer hammers versus stall bought, and uh, specifically what kind of tape you like. Do you like the veneer tape, blue painters tape, cellophane tape? Uh, I know there's a lot of schools of thought out there. Um, I really like the technique. I've enjoyed it for a while and I love the fact that I don't need a bunch of equipment like vacuum bags and crazy calls. So um, keep up the great work and stay sharp. Thanks. So thanks for this suggestion, Damien. Excellent, uh, excellent suggestion for a topic. Um, hammer veneering, you know, people, when you want to get into veneering, it, it, it can seem a bit intimidating at first because when you look at most of what's written about doing veneer work today, there's a lot of specialty stuff that seems to be involved, uh, making really complicated forms, um, vacuum systems with, with bags and vacuum pumps, um, giant presses and, and all these different things. And you look at the equipment and you say, damn, I need, I need a lot of stuff. I don't know. You know, maybe it's not worth it right now, or I can't afford to get started right now. Um, you don't hear a lot about hammer veneering, except from a few, um, a few folks that are very into the, into the traditional methods. It's just not something that seems to be discussed too frequently. But if you're just looking to get started in veneer work, Hammer veneering is a fantastic way to try because there's very little investment in in tooling required. Um, and there's not a whole lot of, of complicated things to it. You know, you can uh, you can really get into it very inexpensively. So let's talk about some of the things that that you'll need for hammer veneering. Um, so that you can get started and, and give it a shot because it's it's a whole lot of fun to be able to use crazy woods that you wouldn't typically be able to use either because they're just not very stable or they're insanely expensive if you wanted to use a you know use them in their solid three quarter or, or one inch thick form, but much more affordable when you use them as veneer. Um, so. Let's talk about we'll, we'll talk about a few different things, um, and I, I want to start with the glue because this is actually one of the most common questions that I get when I get questions about veneer is um, what kind of glue you know do you use and, and what kind of glue can you use? Well, in the more contemporary sense of veneer work, you can use any glue you want because you're usually using vacuum vacuum uh, vacuum bag systems or calls with a lot of clamps. So you can use yellow glue, you can use white glue, you can use um, any type of hide glue, you can use polyurethane glues and and um, resin glues and, and two-part epoxies. And you can use just about any kind of glue that you want when you're using lots of different equipment to keep the veneer in place, you know, if you're using vacuum bags and, and presses and things like that. When it comes to hammer veneering, your glue choices are much more limited, um, and it's because of the way that these glues work. So, the the whole thing, the the, the person who taught me the, the most about hammer veneering, you know, I, I've watched a lot of videos um, by Rob Millard, and he does some some great work on it. But a good friend of mine, Frank Vicolo, who's very into into building um, federal style pieces, does a lot of veneer work, taught me a lot about hammer veneering. And he, he's he got a, 
a uh, an analogy that I really like, and I, I think it really makes a lot of sense um, when you think about it. Uh, and, and it's essentially, you know, if you were to go, you take a shower, and if you take your vinyl shower curtain and stick it to the tile wall, you'll notice that the the uh, the shower curtain itself sticks to the wall because of the capillary action of the water between the tile wall or the shower wall and the curtain itself. And there's no glue there. There's nothing there, but it sticks to the wall because of that, that capillary action. And what happens is that very thin film of water that is between the shower curtain and the shower wall, when you stick the shower curtain to the wall, it pushes out all the air and that very thin film of water then creates a vacuum between the shower curtain and the wall and it sticks, it stays in place. Um, if you've ever sharpened with water stones, really high end or, or high, um, high grit water stones, and you've had your blade stick to the water stone, um, because it, it's essentially the same thing. If a water stone is really flat and you're lapping the black, the backside of a, a plane blade that is also really flat, that plane blade actually may stick to the water stone itself, and it actually gets hard to move. And it's the same thing going on. The water between the stone and the blade creates a very thin film, pushes out all the air, and it creates a vacuum, and it makes it that blade very hard to move on the surface of the stone. You actually have to break that suction, um, spray a little bit more water on the stone, and get back to work. Essentially, the same thing is happening with hammer veneering. So we don't need clamps. We don't need calls. We don't need vacuum bags. Um, we don't need anything but glue, a veneer, and one tool. Um, and that tool is the is the veneer hammer. So we'll talk about the hammers in a second, but let's talk about the glues for a minute. The, the way that um, glues work for hammer veneering is you want to be able to get the veneer down to the surface, whatever substrate you're using, and you want that veneer to stick and you want it to stay there. Most glues are going to cause problems with this. If you try to use a PVA or if you try to use liquid hide glue for this, they tend to um, stay, they have a, a much longer open time. And what ends up happening is you you give the chance, you give the veneer a chance to break that seal um, just like your shower curtain, if the water behind the shower curtain starts to dry or drain away, the shower curtain peels away from the shower wall. The same thing happens with veneer. If you lay it down over PVA glue or liquid hide glue and walk away, that veneer will event, will start to peel up after a couple of minutes uh, because it just starts to break the suction. So uh, liquid hide glue... PVA glue, really better used if you're going to clamp that veneer in place or put it in a vacuum bag and clamp it that way. Hot hide glue, on the other hand, is ideal for hammer veneering because there's a very limited open time. And you may think that that limited open time is a disadvantage, but it's actually an advantage for hammer veneering because what ends up happening is when you hammer veneer with hot hide glue, as you push the veneer down, you squeeze out most of the glue, 
that hot hide glue begins to cool and gel. And as that hot hide glue begins to gel, it grabs the veneer and holds it in place and keeps it from breaking that suction because it starts to to cool and tack right away. So it can be it, that's hide, hot hide glue's advantage in this situation. Uh, is that it does not let the veneer break that suction because it starts to grab and tack very quickly. Now, with that said, that does create some of its own problems, and I'll talk about those in a, in a little bit when we get to that. But um, really, when you're talking about hammer veneering, you really want to be using hot hide glue for that reason because the hot hide glue is going to not give the veneer enough time to pull away from the surface before it begins to tack up. Now, there are a lot of different gram strengths of hot hide glue that you'll find. If you go to Tools for, work, for Working Wood and look at the hide glue that they offer there, you're going to find that they offer a bunch of different formulas or, or versions of hot hide glue. Most people who do veneer work prefer to use the 192 gram strength. It's the lowest gram strength, which means it has the least amount of strength, not the and don't mistake that as being as meaning it doesn't have a lot of strength. It's still an extremely strong glue, and you can use 192 gram strength hot hide glue for all of any work that you do from here on out um, and be perfectly fine with it. Um, it just has the lowest strength of all of the different hide glues, but it's plenty strong enough to do anything you want to do with it. But that lower strength also means it has a slightly longer open time than the higher gram strength hide glues. So it gives you a little bit more working time when you are doing veneer work. So that's why most people prefer the 192 gram strength. Um, so if you're gonna give this method a try, that's what I would suggest. Go to a place like Tools for Working Wood and get yourself a packet of 192 gram strength hot hide glue. You're also going to need um, some way to mix that hide glue. A very simple method is to uh, if you've got a, an old electric hot plate, you know, I use an old cast iron glue pot. It's a double boiler style glue pot. Um, I think I paid 10 bucks for it and I have a, another $10 hot plate from, uh, you know, the nearest big box store. I don't have the fancy expensive electric glue pot and you really don't need it. Uh, any old hot plate or hot pot or anything will work. If you take a pot off of, out of your kitchen pantry um, some kind of saucepan, wash out an old glass jelly jar, fill, put your, um, take that, that pan that you have the, from the kitchen, take that saucepan, put some water in it, put your hide glue into your glass jelly jar and cover it with water. Let the hide glue absorb that water for about a half an hour and then put the saucepan of water over some heat, you can do it over your kitchen stove, although that may be a little bit too much heat. Again, you can do it over electric hot plate, $10 electric hot plate in your shop. Put the jelly jar in the saucepan of hot water and you've just created a glue pot, a double boiler glue pot. And then you're just gonna let that hide glue warm up until it's about as hot as a cup of coffee. Uh, that's usually how I like to, to look at it. If you can take your hands and put them on the outside of that saucepan, uh, you know, the, the, if you want to put a thermometer in there, the temperature you're looking for is somewhere around 140, 145 degrees. Um, but I don't measure the temperature. 
if you can take your hands and put them on the outside of that saucepan and that and and you don't immediately get burned um then you're probably in the neighborhood you know if you've ever put your hands around a, a hot cup of coffee um and it's hot but it's not so hot that you can't keep your hands there that's about the temperature that you're looking for it should be you know it should be pretty hot um but again it shouldn't be scalding hot um and that's about the temperature you're looking for for the glue and once you have your glue prepared you're going to want some kind of you're going to want a veneer hammer and there are two different ways you can go about this you can buy a store bought veneer hammer and they're usually made of cast iron and they have some type of um usually brass piece on the bottom that acts as the squeegee um or you can make your own and there are plenty of plans out there i made my own out of cherry and i inlaid a piece of brass i epoxied a piece of brass to the bottom to use as the squeegee part um you can also use ultra high molecular weight plastic for the squeegee part anything really that's going to be smooth um and and somewhat durable now there are some advantages to shop made veneer hammers first they're fairly inexpensive so you can they're they're easy to make they're inexpensive um and you can do pretty much whatever you want with them um but the the um store bought veneer hammers do have an advantage that um my my friend frank pointed out to me is that the metal will hold heat so what frank likes to do is take that metal hammer and put it in the hot water that his glue is heating up in so if he's got his glue heating up in that jelly jar in a saucepan um put the metal head of that hammer into that hot water as well and it holds the heat from that hot water and that helps the glue the hot hide glue um keeps it warmer while he's working um so I thought that was a a really good trick when he showed me that um I don't have a metal head on my veneer hammer um but I do have a brass squeegee part so it will hold a little bit of heat so I have no qualms about dunking that in water to clean off any glue or or warm it up a little bit as well um but the metal definitely has an advantage there that it will stay warmer by warming it up in the water uh, that you're also heating your glue up in so but other than that i mean they're basically the same tool a veneer hammer is not a hammer in the traditional sense of the word where you would use it to hit something what it is really used for is as a squeegee and you're using it to squeeze the glue out from between the veneer and the substrate so when you are hammer veneering you take your substrate and you apply very generously very liberally and very quickly a layer of hot hide glue to that surface then you lay your veneer right on top of that hot hide glue sir that hot hide glue that you laid down on the substrate and you lay it down with the show side facing down and the reason for that is that's going to keep some of the heat in that glue that's on the substrate while you apply more glue to the veneer itself and you're going to apply that glue to the veneer itself again very quickly and very liberally don't worry about dripping or or spilling just get it on there and get it on there fast and get it on liberally and cover the entire piece of veneer then you're going to peel that veneer up and flip it over so that the show side is facing up and you're going to apply more veneer to the more glue sorry to the show side so you've brushed glue on three surfaces now first the surface of the substrate then the glue surface of the veneer 
Then you flip the veneer over, laid it down on the substrate, and put glue on the show surface of the veneer. And the point of the glue on the show surface of the veneer is twofold. First, it helps to rewarm the glue underneath. Second, it helps to lubricate the surface for the veneer hammer. And once you have that glue liberally applied to the show surface of the veneer, you're then going to use your veneer hammer working from the center out, and you're going to squeeze out most of the glue from between the veneer and the substrate from the center towards the edges. And that's going to press the veneer down into the glue on the substrate. And it's going to also squeeze all of the air out from between the veneer and the substrate. And that's the real goal of veneer hammer is to push out the excess glue, but more importantly, to push out the air. Because once you've pushed all the air out, that veneer is going to stay in place and it's not going to peel up. Um, and it, it's a quick process and you, you end up squeegeeing most of the glue off of the surface of the veneer. But if you do, as you're squeegeeing that glue off with the veneer hammer, if you end up with a spot that's starting to cool down and it won't, it won't, won't quite go down, you can add more hide glue to the surface to warm things back up again in that spot and then squeeze it out again. Um, and that should do the, in most cases, that should, should fix the problem. Um, and then once you have all the air pushed out from between the veneer and the substrate, you just take that piece and you set it aside to dry and you don't have to put any clamps, tape, vacuum bag, nothing. You just set it aside to dry as the, as the, um, glue gels up as it cools, it holds everything. And the other benefit of hide glue as it cools, it shrinks. So as that hide glue between the surface, the substrate and the veneer um, cools and cures, it is actually going to shrink and it's going to pull that veneer even tighter to the surface. So it, it's a wonderful technique. It works great. So we talked about glue. We've talked about hammers. Let's talk about the substrate for a minute. Um, you can use almost anything as a substrate for hammer veneering. If you look at traditional work, they often used quarter sawn material. Um, quarter sawn mahogany was used sometimes, um, pine, poplar, anything that is going to be fairly stable will work fine as a veneer substrate. And it does not have to be man-made substrate as some would have you believe today. Um, a lot of the veneer quote unquote experts today will tell you, you've got to use MDF or you've got to use Baltic birch plywood as your substrate because solid wood moves. P.S. Veneer is solid wood and veneer is going to move as well. So, um, you know, you can, they've been using solid wood as a substrate for veneer for hundreds of years, and there's no reason we can't continue to do the same today. Um, I don't use MDF. I very rarely use plywood. And for the veneer work that I have done, I have used solid wood as a substrate and it really, and it has never been an, an issue or a problem. Um, so I would recommend, you know, using a, a, a wood that is stable when it is dry. White pine is very stable when it's dry, makes a good substrate. Um, walnut's fairly stable. Mahogany's fairly stable. Poplar's fairly stable. Um, all good woods to veneer over. And if you can get them quarter sawn, even better. They'll be even less likely to, to cause issues. 
Um, but I've veneered over flat sawn pine um, and it's been fine as well. So I wouldn't stress too much over substrate. It should be flat. It should be fairly stable um, and it should be cheap. You know, you're not going to want to veneer over something extremely expensive. That kind of defeats the whole purpose of veneer. Um, so um, something inexpensive, flat and stable is what you're looking for. Uh, you certainly can hammer veneer over MDF if you like or over plywood, but there's no reason not to use solid wood as well. So don't feel like you cannot use solid wood for your substrate. Perfectly acceptable, perfectly fine. The veneer itself, um, you can use just about any veneer for hammer veneering. I've done it with commercial veneer. In fact, when, when Frank taught me to do veneer work, that's what we used. We used commercial walnut and maple burl veneers that we were laying down. Um, and those commercial veneers work fine. They're very convenient because you can order them. The veneer is already cut. Um, you order them and, and when they arrive, you have to flatten the veneer and then you're good to go. Um, commercial veneers are typically going to require some sort of flattening. Um, they sell veneer, they sell, sell solutions that you can use to flatten those veneers. They're usually some mix of um, water, hide glue, and glycerin. Um, they help to soften the veneer. And then once the, the commercial veneer has been softened with that mixture, um, you kind of press it between um, some window screen and newspapers and lay some calls and weight on top. Um, and that'll flatten it back out and then it'll stay flat because when commercial veneer arrives, it's usually kind of like potato chips. It's, it's not flat. It's kind of crinkly and, and, um, rigid and, and brittle. So you need to soften it up real good and flatten it before you use it. But you can also saw your own veneers. If you have a bandsaw, if you have a large frame saw or a large rip saw, um, you can saw your own veneers and I've done this as well. Um, and I actually prefer working with shop sawn veneers because they're thicker and a little bit easier to work with and they don't tend to have the problems with curling and, and potato chipping like commercial veneers do that are because they're so thin. Um, the, the shop sawn veneers that I've made are typically running in, you know, a little less than an eighth of an inch, usually somewhere between an eighth and a sixteenth of an inch. Um, the last time I sawed my own veneer, um, I think I sawed it down. When I sawed it, it was about a tenth of an inch thick. Um, and then after dressing the surfaces with a hand plane to get it ready for veneering, um, it was down to about a sixteenth of an inch thick, maybe about a millimeter thick. Um, so, and that works great because it doesn't, the, those shops on veneers don't tend to potato chip and, and get crazy as much as the, um, commercial veneers tend to. But if they do, again, you can, you can soften them the same way. If you soak them in some water, um, you know, you can soften them and flatten them back out with a little bit of hide glue mixed in there will help to, uh, to hold it in place. Um, and then the beauty of all that hide glue, you know, it's a question that probably came up when I was talking about the hide glue and putting it on all those different surfaces of the wood. Um, the beauty of the hide glue is that it's transparent to most finishes. So once your veneer dries after hammer veneering and you've got all that glue on the surface, you're going to do a little scraping to get most of that excess glue off and get that veneer surface smooth. But when you apply a finish, if there's any little areas of hide glue that you missed, 
that hide glue is going to penetrate through the finish and get to the wood um, and it's not going to cause an issue like PVA or epoxy or some other glue might um, where you will need to get all of that glue off if you're using those types of glues. So just another benefit of hide glue there. Um, so, and you can use just about anything for veneer. Most of your, of your commercial veneers are going to be fancy, expensive woods, um, burls, curly stuff, um, you know, beeswing, mahogany type figure and crazy figured stuff that you typically either don't get in solid or is just too expensive to buy in solid form. Um, and those are great things, you know, to work with. Um, it, it allows you to to get the look and to work with woods that you may not normally get to work with. So, um, and for shops on veneer, you know, if you've got a nice walnut board or something or a cherry board that, uh, you've only got a small piece of it, maybe it's like a crotch or something like that. Um, and you want to use that, but you don't have enough of it for a whole project. Great to saw that up into veneer and then maybe build your project at a pine or poplar and use that, that crotch veneer, uh, over top of that pine or poplar and then you can extend the use of that that uh, great looking piece of lumber that you just didn't have enough for for the whole project. Um, and then the, the other thing that Damien asked about was tape. Um, and I haven't used too much tape. I, I seem, what I see tape used for more is um, when you're using calls to keep things from slipping. Um, the hammer veneer work that I've done has more or less been in the solid. What I have used tape for, um, if you go back to my old blog and you look for, for pictures of the William & Mary Bible box that I did, um, I believe I may have used tape to put the bandings on after the main field veneer was done. Um, and I just used regular old um, painter's tape, blue tape, green tape, whatever. Um, and that works just fine. You can make your own veneer tape. The, I've talked to the the guys in Colonial Williamsburg, and they'll just take paper. Um, they use linen um, sometimes, but you can even just do it with regular paper and coat that paper with uh, a very thin layer of hot hide glue, and you've essentially made your own veneer tape. Um, you know, you just you can reactivate it by licking it or just getting it a little bit wet. It gets sticky and you've got, you know, you've got some veneer tape. Um, so there are lots of different options if you're finding yourself finding that you need tape. I haven't done much in the way of marquetry. So using tape in that way is not something that I've really done. Um, again, just because I haven't done the work. Um, but, you know, I would think veneer tape, blue tape, uh, would all work just fine for that. I've seen them all used. So um, if you're in a traditional setting, a museum setting, you probably don't want to be pulling out the, the blue tape. Um, you know, that's a great, great opportunity to use some paper and hide glue and, and make your own veneer tape, so to speak. Um, but, you know, if you're in your own shop and you don't have to be historically accurate, uh, I think blue tape would work just fine for that as well. Um, so that's about all I have to say on the subject of veneer. Again, I am not an expert on this. So uh, what I might do one day, if if I can uh, figure out my internet connection so that I can get Skype calls in here and get some interviews with some, some people who are more knowledgeable in these subjects, I'm going to try to do that because there are some things that I really would like to discuss on the podcast um, in, more de in more detail, like this veneering um, 
and and uh, some other topics where I'd really like to get some experts to come in, but I need to get my my internet connection worked out first and make sure I'm going to be able to get Skype calls because I'm in a pretty rural area and the internet connection is kind of shaky for that kind of thing. But um, if I can get that worked out, there are some people that I would like to get on talk in more detail about some of these more advanced topics. So uh, I'll I'll work on that. But that's all I've got for this week. Um, as always. I want to thank you all for joining me and for allowing me to do this because without your support, none of this will be possible. And as a reminder, please send in your feedback, questions, and topic suggestions because this show depends upon your input and participation for its content. And thank you again for everyone who has done so. And if I haven't gotten to your questions or uh, topic suggestions yet, uh, Fear not, they are on the list and I will be getting to them. It doesn't mean I have a huge backlog. Um, I don't, so you know, still keep sending those questions in, but I do have enough for at least the next few shows. So thank you to everyone who has been sending stuff in. Um, and it, if you want to do that, you can uh, record a voice memo on your phone, email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123. Or you can use the contact form on the website at brfinewoodworking.com slash contact. If you're looking for the show notes, you can find them on the website at brfinewoodworking.com slash htt025. And in the show notes, you'll find any links that I referred to. And you can also find links to follow me on all my social media accounts. Finally, if you'd like to support the show, you can become a supporter on Patreon. Or you can make a one-time donation through PayPal. And you'll find links to do all these things in the show notes and at brfinewoodworking.com slash support. So thanks again, everybody, for listening. And until next time, stay sharp.